Welcome to the Intentifiers podcast. I'm your host, Jody Rye, bringing to you stories of intent from folks looking for more humanity in their workplaces through the lens of intentionality. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, Nivi. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. So before we start uh, digging deep into your story of intent, I'd love for you to share with the audience um, who you are. Okay, so, well, my name is Nivi Jaswal, and uh, I'm currently based in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And um, I started my academic life out uh, with a bachelor's in clinical psychology and then got an MBA in behavioral marketing. Um, I also have a professional certificate in um, entrepreneurship, innovation, design thinking um, from Stanford. And I have 15 years of experience in uh, the corporate world and, you know, did a lot of international marketing, brand management, corporate strategy work with um, a very large consumer goods company, Unilever, and uh, life sciences company, Boston Scientific, and in the media research industry uh, with WPC, uh, specifically within the WPC family, I was with Cantar uh, TNS. And, um, well, lately, I... Uh, you know, decided to go back to school. So I went and trained at the Mayo Clinic and I'm a certified uh, health and wellness coach. I also took my board exam, so I'm board certified. I'm a professional team member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine with a lifestyle medicine coaching certificate. Uh, And I practice in Boston as a consultant. Diverse sectors, really, biotech, consumer goods, nonprofits, um, education, nutrition startups. I also work with entrepreneurs. And and typically how I work is I blend um, a lot of my brand consulting, business consulting um, experience with coaching um, and creative problem solving for my projects. And I'm also a whole foods plant-based educator. Yeah, and then I help uh, individuals uh, in preventing, you know, uh, uh, chronic illness, which seems to be all pervasive in the world we live in today. Mm. Yeah, no That's kidding. Me. Do you, do you sleep ever? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That has taken um, a lot of behavior change on that one part, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, we'll talk about. The specifics of what really happened, and I, I have battles with debilitating insomnia. You have, you know, yeah, and, and I and I and I I meant that as a um as an inspiring comment in the sense of what you described and and all that you've accomplished. It's a really and and the diversity. It's really amazing. And so, were you happy with what you were doing in terms of your work? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Jody. I think I was really happy, like mentally, emotionally. I, I think I was really happy. I was achieving a lot. And, you know, oftentimes what happens is that we develop a value system basis what the society, what the, the age in which we were born in defines and describes the metrics of success mm. as. Right. So often, I, and I was born and raised in India, and, uh, you know, and, and as a child of the 80s and the 90s when you're growing up, uh, you know, the the big thing is, hey, I want to go work for a large brand, I want to go work for a large company, and I want to have an MBA from a top business school, and and so on, and, you know, like, within the Indian culture, education is really important, and it's emphasized, you know, for good reason, and I'm proud of that uh, about our community. And, and so I was, uh, I was a good student. I was a very good child, you know, obedient and getting all the, you know, checking all the boxes, like getting all the good grades and stuff. So I, I felt like I was um, following a trajectory that was not just um, expected of me at a certain level, but I was also doing a lot of good with it. Right. Um, I, I equated that large corporations have... I never questioned the fact that their intention would be anything else, but also to do good for the community um, and, and for the consumer you know, inherently. You know? mm-hmm. and maybe maybe that was a really naive impression that I had, but I do uh, fervently believe that a lot of organizations and a lot of people working for those organizations continue to believe that their company has deep-rooted purpose behind their brand. I can totally uh, resonate with you and relate in terms of our community and the push for education. That's really strong, and I do appreciate it as well. 
And I also agree with you in terms of the social, the social aspect that has come to fruition a lot more in organizations in terms of people wanting to work for a company where they, they really believe in the purpose and that it's more than profit, that it's social profit. And so I don't disagree with you. I think that that's true, even though um, we may see, especially in the climate that we're in right now, a lot of cynicism when it comes to um, our societies and, and the trauma that is occurring in, in the world. So I'm wondering, based on your background and the work that you were doing, what changed for you? Um, yeah, so uh, let me share with you a story, you know, a personal story of, you know, transformation, if you like, or transition from uh, working with within a certain system and, and then finding myself questioning um, that system and questioning myself, whether I belong to that system. Mm. Um, so this happened in um, March, early March, um, 2015. And um, I was in Hong Kong. Uh, I was living in Singapore at the time. Um, and it's a short flight, it's about four and a half hours. So I'd just gone there for uh, a workshop and a training. And, and then I was going to stay on for um, an APAC conference or something of the sort. And I remember finishing that workshop. Um, I hadn't had much during the day, and I had lots and lots of espresso. <laughs> uh, I used to love coffee, and I used to love espresso back then. And I must have had between five or six espressos to sort of keep my you know, um, keep my eyes open and, and continue staying alert. And I hadn't had much food. Hmm. And I had some nuts, you know, um, in breaks or something. So I find myself around 5.30 p.m. declining the um, offer by my team to go out for dinner together. But instead, I chose to go back to my hotel room. And 30 minutes later, I found myself on on the floor of, of my hotel room with the door locked on the inside. So it was pretty clear that it was just me, that there was no one else. Um, and I searched for my phone, I finally found it under the bed, reached for it, and I saw lots and lots of missed calls, uh, you know, from friends and family, from um, coworkers. Uh, and, and they were kind of perplexed that how did we fall off the radar for 30 minutes because like I was known to be constantly pushed on and it didn't really matter whether it was 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 p.m. during the day and then well it was all know, those I'm proud of that. well no I could see that it was all those espressos right of course you were on all the time <laughs> yeah 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 literally and metaphorically so yeah. and I had all my notifications on and you know and and some of us get into that really bad hyper loop of um needing and, and wanting to attend to work and, and make it almost central to our lives. Um, and, and, and I guess that for a lot of us, including myself back then, I felt that what I was doing was really aligned with my value system. Mm. And, and so that is where the fuel really was coming from because I deeply inherently believed that I was doing the right thing and that I was working for the right type of organizations and that we together as um, you know, employees and teams within those large organizations were truly delivering social value and social profit, you know, and then making uh, a big difference in the community. Mm. Um, so, so anyway, you know, I found myself, I gathered my senses, um, and I noticed that I was, um, my, my resting heart rate was really, really high, and I had this um, app on my phone but I wanted to track my heart rate. And I did that, and I noticed that my heart rate was um, 166 beats per minute at rest. Wow. Wow. Okay. And yeah, so that's dangerous. And, you know, um, I had uh, worked with um, the life sciences industry, mm -hmm. so especially, you know, one that uh, specialized in interventional cardiology, uh, cardiology and peripheral peripheral vascular health. So I, I, I was spooked, you know, I, I felt like maybe I had a cardiac event, um, maybe something was wrong with my heart structurally, I don't know. So, so basically what I did was I flew out, 
um, within a few hours, back from Hong Kong, canceled my meetings, um, and flew back home, uh, which was Singapore at the time. And I checked myself into the hospital. And the difference, Jody, was that I walked in thinking that I was relatively healthy mm. and that I was going to the gym. You know, like I, I was working, I was going to the gym, and I thought that I was looking after myself, eating lean protein, you know, having a um, low carb. Uh, I was specifically on a ketogenic sort of a diet. And, and I thought that I had all the boxes checked when it came to um, leading this cutting edge life, you know, <laughs> upwardly mobile, death setting, and really achieving a lot of, um, you know, stuff for yeah. myself and for my self-esteem and also for community and markets and corporation and whatever. Yeah, like, so, you, you, you know, I could see that where you felt like I've got everything going on. You know, I did fall. You you checked your heart rate. You you did the right thing, of course, in terms of maybe I I, I should just check myself in and just make sure everything's fine. And I'm sure you're probably thinking I've I've got this. I'm probably okay. And so, what happened when you when you did um, check in and and what came about um, after during that visit and 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 afterwards for you in terms of your health? Right, and and you know, perception changes everything, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I walked in thinking I was healthy. And that this was episodic. This was just an event, and maybe I really exhausted myself preparing for that workshop. Um, but I walked out a patient. Mm. I walked out from that really large hospital in Singapore um, as a patient with an ID and with a list of diagnoses, which um, I thought I was actually actively preventing myself from getting. And, um, and and to just give you a little background, my father developed type two diabetes um, in the nineties, and, and I was you know preteen at that point in time. And I remember thinking that no matter what, I should never, never, never have type two diabetes. And um, and there it was. Like I looked at my HbA1c, and they'd done my blood work, and they measured my cholesterol levels, and I was hypertensive. I was uh, dangerously tachycardic. Um, which is this abnormally rapid heart rate at risk, and um, uh, I was uh, I was borderline diabetic. I, I was I was a confirmed pre-diabetic, so uh, you know to, to be clear. And I had suppressed thyroid. Um, I had polycystic ovarian symptoms on both my ovaries, and uh, I I was. Uh, Exhausted simply because I had debilitating insomnia. I just couldn't sleep longer than three hours per night. Wow. And and it's like I'm speechless because from the way you were describing how you thought you had checked off boxes and felt that you were really living a life that you know felt good and you were doing you were doing good and you were going to the gym and you know you had. Um, a desire to to be healthy and 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 some of that was based on seeing what your dad had in terms of his type 2 diabetes only to then have this event take place where you pass out and then as you say leaving the hospital as a patient with not a great diagnosis and so that must have been scary um it was more than scary Jody. i mean it actually um called the you know, run from under my feet. It made me question every single thing that I had done or every value around health and nutrition, around working out, around how, how I was leading my life. It made me question all of that, right? And it started with this really egocentric premise that how can I, someone who had worked for health brands in the past who had worked for life sciences companies in the past and who was currently working with these so-called health wellness brands had no clue that I was actually the culture child for lack of health and, and for lifestyle disease of all of these varieties, right? And it made me question the definition of health. Mm. It made me question whether these companies knew or even bothered to know what real health means or meant. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm not a cynical person. I, I would like to describe myself as someone who is, you know, optimistic and positive and happy and, and so on. And and I don't believe that any of these companies 
ever had their R&D people untwist the marketing people telling them that, no, 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 mayonnaise has 80% fat in it, uh, and, uh, you know, so it's going to make people really, really obese and, you know, have all these different diseases, and marketing teams going, no, 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 we're going to disregard all that information, but we will actually pitch, um, you know, this as health food. So, so I'm not saying that for a minute. I'm not saying that marketeers like myself or brand leaders like myself, um, you know, inside organizations, are ever sort of untwisted into telling lies, mm-hmm. you know, which a lot of people are, oh, this is a marketing lie. This has become a very fashionable term to say for a lot of people that, oh, this is not science, this is marketing. Dairy is for you is not science, is marketing, right? And, and I honestly feel a little um, indignant about that <laughs> because nobody was untwisting me into telling a lie. I mean, we, if at all, we, from marketers to sales personnel, to nutritionists, to R&D people, to packaging, to supply chain, all of the different systems within the value chain, from the concept to the consumer, I felt we were all pretty aligned with the idea of health, mm-hmm. and that we had at our fingertips um, the best health and well-being research information that money can buy. Mm. Right, and and we're talking about million dollar to billion dollar brands that are well funded. Right, and so so my world shook mm. because I didn't have the answer, um, or at least the right answer, from within the system that I had been so long participating in, and mm. I knew in that instance that I had to go out of that system to re-educate myself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we hear so much about um, systems thinking and, you know, hacking, hacking the system or transform the system. And especially with what we see happening uh, around the world in terms of Black Lives Matters, I saw a, a quote that said, it's not us that's broken, it's the system that's broken. And I think that what you've said is, is, is quite poignant along the lines of what is my role in this system? And, and also the idea around how real am I being with myself in addition to anyone that I'm involved in? And I find that uh, really inspiring, Nibby, because I don't think we all necessarily do that. And I'm not, and I'm not saying people are doing the opposite um, because they're it's self-serving like you say it's not that we're doing this to hurt people but sometimes that awareness we, we don't have it because we're just going through the motions like you described you're just doing checking off the boxes and just doing everything you thought that was working um only to discover really in your case the complete opposite um and so what happened from there for you what did you do once once you were now a patient what happened um, okay, so someone who is a you know newly a patient, they can actually have. I mean, they're they're, they're scared, obviously. So I don't as was I. Um, but you can you can have one of two reflexes. You can either flight or you know flee, or you can freeze, right? And and I firmly believe that those of us who freeze then risk absorbing that label and then living up to it mm. and getting sucked into from you know being spat out of one system and then getting sucked into the healthcare system which is another system of itself right <laughs> in and of itself and i decided to flee mm. i was like okay i am not accepting this label i have always thought of myself as healthy or relatively healthy mm-hmm. Um, I am not going to accept these labels and I need to find out, I need to get under the skin of these, each of these different diagnoses and, and find out exactly what's going on. Hmm. So what I did was I took a sabbatical and I spoke to my HR business partner and I shared that, Hey, you know, I did it back to school and, you know, maybe find myself in like an academic environment again and, you know, what better than to, you know, go enroll yourself in a school or in a program or something and, and, and just put yourself in that learning mode um, where maybe some new ideas can come your way in while you're on this quest, right? So I enrolled at Stanford and um, I participated in an executive um, education program uh, that they offer. 
And it was a brilliant program. You know, we discussed a lot about storytelling, social entrepreneurship, uh, the possibility of incubating, um, you know, social ideas and socially relevant ideas, um, uh, especially social causes that have like business models embedded in them. And that sort of thing really, um, you know, interests me a lot. I also studied design thinking. And, and I felt like I was learning a lot and I felt that I, that the solution that I was seeking for my own health, um, I had to apply whatever it was that I was learning and bring a childlike wonder mm. and, and pretend like I didn't understand anything. I had to question all the definitions and I had to kind of like re-educate myself. And, and one of the big things, which I actually picked up in one of the storytelling classes was when um, Professor Jennifer Offer, so Professor Offer said, the best way to learn is to teach someone else, right? And uh, and I'm like, okay, like I'm not an educator, so what should I do? And, you know, I was talking to my mom about this, and, and both my parents are anthropologists. Um, and, you know, each of them, they've worked 35, 40 years in different universities um, in India and overseas. And uh, my mom was retiring uh, around that time, and... I felt like she, um, my mom's always really enjoyed her work and her work has been a lot of extension work, um, you know, within uh, the university where she's guided a lot of PhDs and a lot of the topics uh, that she's dealt with have been around women, women empowerment, uh, entrepreneurship in women, especially in rural Punjab, which is, you know, the state in northwestern part of India where I come from. And, um, and children, and you know, and, and the nutrition requirements, etc. So I spoke to mom, and I said, "Hey, I have an opportunity. I wanted, I, I really want to do some work with a specific community in Punjab, hmm. and I prefer for it to be uh, for underserved women." And and my mom, I think that you know, maybe she was like she she was sitting where she was sitting, and maybe she had like a piece of guardian sensor. <laughs> Or, or something like that, and she said, hmm, why not Fulgari? You know, and Fulgari is a traditional handicraft, as you know, uh, you know, which is uh, from Punjab, which started in Punjab. The origin is, is 100, 700 years, um, you know, old. And it's exclusively done by women. Hmm. And it's laborious. It involves a lot of hand, uh, you know, needlework and hand uh, embroidery, and it's under a lot of threat at this point. Um, and... So mom and I, we felt maybe we could start a venture uh, where we could collect a lot of stories about these women and bring it to the world and also use my marketing and business expertise to um, sort of maybe create a digital marketplace for their wares and the shawls that they make and, and other things. Um, and also maybe work towards their wellness mm. and, and understand what's ailing them, right? And um, so in a way, my story and my health story and, and these artisans and their health and, and you know, financial empowerment story, it, it almost sort of started running on a parallel track mm. from, from that moment um, onwards. And this was September 2016. Um, yeah, and, and then soon after, I discovered um, the Mayo Clinic. Uh, no, well, before that, I actually ended up attending a conference in Harvard, at Harvard Medical School. And uh, they were talking about um, health education fundamentals and how plant-based nutrition is you know, changing uh, you know, people's um, experience of chronic illness that they might have and so on. And by such time, we had done um, a blood tests uh, for... Um, you know, we done some, we run some labs for uh, the artisans in Punjab, and we discovered that more than 30%, like one in three at least, had uncontrolled, undiagnosed, untreated diabetes. Mm. Um, that uh, at least 65% of them had anemia or um, iron deficiency diseases. Um, they were not you know, malnourished in the sense that the world has this picture of a malnourished woman or a child, you know, in, in our minds, it's not that. It's actually, unfortunately, a situation of hypernutrition because Punjab happens to be one of the most fertile and wealthy corners of India. Yeah, right? absolutely. And even the idea around bringing that concept around anemia and, um, and diabetes in, in Canada 
Um, many of my friends are Punjabi as well, and, and we'll talk about, oh, it's typical for uh, brown women to, to be anemic, and it's typical for us in terms of our, our ethnicity to be prone to either pre-diabetic or have diabetes. And, you know, like you say, we're in Canada, and we, we do look like the quote-unquote picture of health. And so and when you when you paint that picture for for um, our, our 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 ancestors that are and, and currently living in Punjab, you're right. They don't look like they're not they're not healthy. These are the underlying things that have come about. And even for for women in Punjab, I'm going to guess, you know, and maybe around the world, we tend to take care of others before we take care of ourselves. And so you discover this the, um, in terms of what's happening internally for them and then what happens what how did you build how did you and your mom build on that um in terms of versa and and what you did right so we decided that we wanted to formalize you know our partnership and we wanted to formalize our interaction with the artisans by such time i finished my stanford program um as well as my mayo clinic program and and at mayo clinic i you know trained in behavior change resiliency um and uh you know, as a wellness coach. And um, so I, I got to know much more about health and, and specifically mental health mm -hmm. and emotional health um, through that specific program. Um, I also, uh, uh, you know, studied to get a certificate in science-based nutrition from uh, T. Colin Campbell's Center for Nutrition Studies. Uh, that is it's a program that's hosted uh, by Cornell University. Okay. And so with all of these you know, sort of new ideas and new approaches and new frameworks in my toolkit. Mom and I, we felt that it was a good time for us to, um, you know, kind of incorporate a nonprofit organization. So I incorporated Versa as the Versa Foundation. It's, um, um, you know, U.S. Uh, 501c3 organization uh, with a lot of the strategic frameworking and thinking around it provided by me and uh, a lot of the field operations, um, you know, designed and led by my mom. Very cool. Yeah, amazing. And, and with volunteer support, like we can't do this by ourselves. So we have a lot of friends and family who join in. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, I, I can. I can imagine. I was. I was on the site and saw um, the work that you're doing. You know, and really the empowering that's that's happening for for the artisans themselves, as well as the extended community. Um, there was a gentleman who was doing eye tests, for instance, and that's obviously, you know, somebody who lives in Punjab who's who's doing that. And I think that that's really powerful in terms of arming a community with sort of outside resources, but leaving them with their ability to take care of themselves. And I think that that's quite beautiful. Um, and maybe the the whole point of what teaching is supposed to be. Um, it's, it's, you know, we are fulfilled on our own when we learn, but as you said, when you, you, you teach, you grow, but what you're able to do for others is that much more, not even exponential, but just all over the place in a really good way. Like it's, um, it becomes infectious in a good way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So what else in addition to Versa? Um, has led you to now a change in terms of the work that you're doing in an, a, a, on top of going back to school, like you said, and educating yourself even further and more deeply in terms of your own health. Um, and I love what you said in terms of the, the what you learned in terms of how the human body as a system works, like you mentioned mental health. And I think that that's um, really great that you said that because sometimes we don't necessarily think of ourselves as an entire system and recognizing what we put in not only affects our physical being but also affects our mental being and so with the certifications and the work that you're doing um with versa what else what else are you doing to contribute um you, what did you say you said um be like a wondrous child yeah, I bring a childlike wonder to the yeah. work that I do. So yeah. what what else, what is that other work that you're doing? Right. And then before I share that, Jody, I, I would like to mention that I was able to reverse all of those illnesses that I mentioned. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. And so you yourself took very specific behavioral changes, including what you are eating, and that resulted in that long list being like you say, totally reversed. Absolutely. So 
so um, when I came to know, and I did a lot of research around this, and there's lots and lots of information in the public domain around that, um, I, I switched from, you know, eating dairy and uh, meat or um, chicken and eggs and, and so on. I switched to a whole foods, plant-based, oil-free approach to nutrition. And within six to eight months, a lot of these symptoms, including the insomnia, was completely reversed. Wow, really, eh? Wow. Well, you know, it, it goes to the idea around really deeply understanding our core, our nucleus. And you said, you know, I, I quite love what you said, that you really need, you needed to have this wonder and this curiosity and really dig deep. I mean, and, and I think that you are truly a testament of that in terms of self-leadership so that you could live your espoused values truly. You thought you were. Um, and then this health crisis happens, and now it's completely different for you, including your own health. Um, now you are the poster child, where you said before you weren't, right? Um, that's really wonderful to hear. I'm, I'm, that's, that's amazing. And so based on, I'm, I'm going to assume this sense of empowerment and almost um, freedom that I'm, I'm going to assume came from everything that you learned and then incorporating those changes. Maybe we can go back to what else are you doing with all of this newfound knowledge and energy um, outside of Versa? Right, and, and and that's a great question. The reason why I brought out, um, you know, brought up the fact that I was able to reverse, um, you know, my illnesses was that that reversal and that real experience of evidence-based reversal, right, um, informed my new value system. Mm. Because I had to change my, you know, the old value system with which I was working and I was participating in a certain system. And, and then I needed to sort of go out and see what else could I do with my skills, right? I have um, an MBA. I have a ton of um, experience in terms of how to market brands, how to brand, um, you know, businesses and, and so on. But what type of people and what type of organizations that I was willing to go and do this work for that needed informing, mm. right? And 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 so currently, what I do is I do a lot of um, consulting and a lot of creative problem-solving projects for both nonprofits as well as for-profits, and they tend to be in the space of um, climate change, um, sustainability, reduction of carbon footprint, um, plant-based nutrition, women's empowerment. And within that entire space, a big thing which sort of, you know, runs like a red line is um, empowering people of color mm. to understand how their vulnerability, um, you know, comes about in the first place, right? And, and how the system um, promotes that vulnerability, right? And, and to that, I, I just wanted to quickly say, um, Let's take the example of dairy, mm. right? Now, the human um, ability to tolerate and process dairy is extremely limited. So from a genetic standpoint, there is actually one gene, which is 1310T, <laughs> as in the letter T. So 1310T, this gene is virtually absent in people of color. And the limited population, you know, around the world that does seem to have the prevalence of this gene that is able to, um, you know, make them digest dairy um, more easily than others is people of Northern European descent. Mm. You made me think of um, images that I've seen from, you know, Co Costco or even when I go to the supermarket. Um, and Aparne, you know, Punjabi um, and our jaw and the, the, the milk, the amount of milk that, 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 that we even just have in our tea. Um, and, and it's because that's part, part of our, 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 our culture, right, in terms of what we eat and, and those kinds of things, not knowing the deeper um, parts of maybe not, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. So that's interesting. Okay. And so what, why, what, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but, and so you're thinking around the dairy and people of color. Yeah, and and so here's the question. You just mentioned that cha or or tea is part of our culture. It's important to question whether it really is or not. Okay. 
right? And and I'm sure with you where I'm going with this. So let's say India, you know, is a geography that is very poor. Our cows, our desi cows, are not as fertile as the Holstein and the Jersey cows that you find in Northern Europe and Germany. Um, they their yield is traditionally extremely poor. Hmm. Per capita access to dairy before 1965, for instance, or even the 1980s, was really, really, really low. Hmm. So, if we were to look at the pool of milk, for instance, that was available local production in South Asia for our ancestors to have been able to make chow with it. <laughs> was completely dependent on whether they were able to afford to buy that milk or whether they had their own buffaloes or cattle mm. in their own farms. Mm. And frequently, because these animals were not as fertile and because artificial insemination techniques that are super modern and cattle hybridization that has now happened, where there are no desi cattle left in South Asia anymore, they're all hybrids from Holstein strains and, and from the Jersey strains. And, and all of that started in 1965. It was a political, economic, um, large stimulus you know, package that was provided by the government to actually make India self-reliant and self-sufficient and, uh, you know, and, and dairy. And to the extent that we are the number one or India is the number one producer of dairy in the world. Wow. Right? Now, that takes a long period of time. And that takes about, it took about, you know, 40, 50 years for concerted effort to ramp India's dairy production potential. Our generational memory believes that that's our culture. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we saw. Our generational memory is as short as a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. Because we are not able to see the previous generations and our true ancestors and how they lived and how they ate. Yeah. Right? So we're only able to see the commercial processes that sort of drive the way we drink mm. or you know, drink shah or drive the way we eat food. Yeah, I never thought, well, it's, you're, I'm learning from you today. And it, it's so true in terms of what you say for what we saw and what we saw growing up and how in terms of span of, of life, it's very short. Um, that's all I remember. And, and that, that's including even me going back to India and visiting, you know, but the India that I'm going back to visit is still that newer um, d dairy production India and not, as you say, what was what, what truly was things were like, you know, a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, wow. And so... The and to, if, I, if I may add to that entire thing, the reason why I even picked up dairy you know, as an example is when we look at systems, okay, when we look at public schools and they mandate that dairy is important for children. Yep. Inherent in that is lack of understanding that people of color cannot digest dairy and therefore children of people of color cannot digest dairy as well as their white Caucasian counterparts might be able to. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, right? and what's fascinating about that is it's not like it's coming from a, um, a place of harm. It's, it's, I want to say the word brainwash, but I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, again, kind of like from the beginning of your story, we're going through the motions, you know, and even to the, to the point where for those of us that are mums, and if we happen to be mums in North America, my own personal experience, breastfeeding, yes, and then milk from a bottle. That's just what I was told and what I did. Um, and so to your point around systems and in schools, for instance, you were saying, okay, you know, we're programmed to that it's one of the four food groups and that it's needed. And yet the lack of understanding around what we know is um, how it's not processed or tolerated for people of color um, isn't really being looked at, I guess, at the end of the day. No, oh, absolutely. And, and you're right. This is not some evil conspiracy, right? There is nothing like that. It, it's coming from a place of, hey, dairy has calcium. Kids need calcium because they need, you know, um, stronger bones. Now, my question is, how much of that is actually educated by the dairy industry? Mm. So if the government 
research or government agencies, their primary source of education is the corporation and, you know, private interest, um, then research is not independent and it's not clean because evidence-based research is available since the 1930s. Yeah. You know, and, and we have more and more people coming out and talking about it. We have, you know, Dr. Esselstyn um, from the Cleveland Clinic. We have Dr. T. Cole Campbell from Cornell University. We have so many other physicians. Um, you know, there, there's a nonprofit group, really, really important, significant um, lobby group based out of Washington, D.C. It's called Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Mm. And PCRM are doing a ton of work in ensuring that U.S. you know Department of Agriculture and people who make the population nutrition guidelines um, really take into consideration evidence-based sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, it's different and it's, it's difficult uh, when you have to deal with uh, the fox guarding the hen house, yeah. right? And the fox <laughs> guarding the hen house in this situation or this this case is. The, the meat industry, the egg council, the dairy industry, and, and so on. Um, in fact, where you're based uh, in Canada, the Canadian government in 2019 became the first government on the planet to actually take milk off of your um, population dietary guidelines. Mm. So Nutrition Canada does not include dairy as one of the essential food groups for the first time ever. Wow. See, I didn't know that either. (laughs) Um, Wow. So I'm curious with armed with all of this passion and, and knowledge and now health, you mentioned the Versa group in terms of the amazing work you're doing in Punjab and the majority of what you do now is consulting. And you mentioned a lot of the not-for-profit and, or um, uh, areas that, that you're working in. What else uh, are there other projects or things that are continuing to guide you and motivate you in the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, so uh, I am currently actually involved with a you know really really brilliant um, organization. They're called ClimateHealers.org, and their founder is uh, a gentleman called Dr. Salish Rao. So he's Indian origin, um, and uh, he is. Uh, the original engineers of the internet. Okay. You know, so, so he was one of the founding fathers of, you know, enabling the technology that you and I are using right now to connect <laughs> over such large distances. And uh, he has been part of the climate change conversation for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've been very much influenced by uh, his work. I've, I've read his books and now I feel fortunate that I'm actually um, getting to work alongside uh, and, and trying to sort of see where this work can go you know, from a marketing standpoint. Um, so here's the interesting thing, Jody. A lot of us people, we believe that climate change is a conversation that is divorced from food. Mm. And and therefore, it's this highfalutious conversation that, you know, belongs to um, the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos and, you know, health summits in Cancun and, and all of those things and so on. And that it's basically the climate change, the Paris Accord and so on, that our countries ought to be signing and that as citizens or as ordinary lay people, we can't do much about it. All of those assumptions have actually been challenged um, by Dr. Salish Rao's research work. What he has been able to prove, a couple of things, and these are going to be startling facts. Number one, the Earth is actually going to lose a hundred percent of its wildlife vertebrate species by 2026. That's in less than six years from now. Hmm. In 2016, we already lost 58 percent of them. Hmm. Number two, the species non-humans that are actually dominant on the face of the planet right now are cows, chickens, pigs that we clear off and cut off the Amazon and different grazing, graze, you know, grazing lands and forests all over the world and then do vast animal agricultural operations for dairy, for chicken, for beef, for meat, for eggs, and so on. Okay, so, so domesticated animals 
of if you select species that human beings believe are you know important for nutrition and tasty and so on are the ones that were populating the earth web so if people were to go plant-based you can actually reverse loss of species you can probably help with not funding the animal agriculture that is deforesting um, the entire planet mm-hmm. and this deforestation as well as the methane that is produced by primarily cows in the dairy industry and you know for the for the, for the beef industry etc if we look at global warming dr rao dr selish rao's and, and not just his work but a lot of other people's work actually now shows 80 to 82% of the emissions actually come from the way we raise our food which is basically from animal agriculture mm-hmm. and not necessarily from fossil fuels interesting so the fossil fuel idea and the fossil fuel story by the way has been hijacked by you know ExxonMobil and um Chevron and you know the shells of the world because they want to push and fund for green energy initiatives and and therefore yes why not when all the politicians get together let's talk about that <laughs> but what they don't want to talk about is the fact that there is a bigger larger corporate which then puts the power in the hands of you and I mm-hmm. that every single time we choose to go to the supermarket every single time we have something on our plate we call food and we serve ourselves and our family with what are we doing to prevent mm. our own demise because honestly the earth will survive humans or no humans covid-19 has demonstrated that with ample impact around the world we went into hiding and all the birds and the animals and you know came out and air pollution all over the world reduced and and we saw uh, those satellite images you know over airspace in china how the air cleared out and so on right so that poses a question are we the true cancer on the planet and if we are the earth's going to spit us out yeah later. i love we that get our yeah i love that and that's not the first time you know that i've heard that at the end of the day in terms of the harm that we are doing to mother earth and not owning it you know at the end of the day and and turning turning an eye and turning away from it to, to, for and in some cases for our own self interest um and so i i i love what you what you're saying in terms of when you think of systems thinking and connecting all of these dots together and then seeing um for you specifically you as a single entity nivia as a human being what you're going to do and 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 why you're doing it and 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 it's such a strong powerful idea around incremental intentions connecting to life purpose and i just think it's beautiful and so the project that you mentioned that's one of a few others that you're working on i'm assuming and i think it's i think it's amazing and i really appreciate you sharing the details and um especially on the stats and the evidence based research um you know when we were talking earlier i kept thinking about the spin of things you know and social media and we're only as smart as what we choose to consume whether that be through social media through the news through having conversations in addition to what we consume in terms of into our bodies and so i think that the work that you're doing is so powerful because um it's not it's not easy like you say there's a lot that is needs to be broken and or needs to be penetrated um but i'm sure glad you're on the human side of things to be honest with you and and on the side of earth um what are your closing thoughts in terms of your story of intent what would you what are some key things that you'd love to leave the audience with Jody, thank you so much for that. You know, almost like a summary that that you shared. Um, my big message to anyone who you know listens to this conversation is: try and find where you your personal value system and your professional value system right now is with respect to the survival of your own species. Mm. It has to be at that level, and if it isn't, and if the only you know horizon that you can think of is oh the next car that i'm going to buy or the next um you know big buffet that i'm going to go have 
you know, bottomless fries and, and, and so on, right? Because those are the titillating material pleasures that a lot of us in the shorter run um, tend to fall for. Mm. Um, but the, the big thing that I want to really share and I'm kind of like find right words for articulating it is, well, if anyone listening to this is in a position of influence and power, and if they are working for a big corporation um, that has the funding and the resources and all the, the conversation around is about purpose and mission and, and so on, even if they were to put 1% of their time or 1% of the total resources that they have or even less towards a real call mm. that prevents 2026 from happening, which is loss of 100% of my life, which actually prevents chronic illness in people from ever developing. I mean, there are kids that are born with hyperinsulinemia because pregnant moms are fed with um, huge amounts of dairy mm. and high-fat products, right? If you can pick a cause along these lines, be sure that you will actually be doing something to save the planet and to save your own species. And, and if you're not thinking about that today, um, sooner than later, we're going to be voted out mm. of our own planet. And, and being voted out and being outlawed from our own home is, uh, well, dire circumstances. Yeah. You know, what a waste. <laughs> what a waste of human life. Yeah, what a waste. Absolutely. Um, Nivi, thank you so much. I, I, I'm beyond grateful. I never thought um, hearing about you um, from a, a, a mutual friend a fellow sister would lead to such an enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for taking your time and for all the work that you're doing to save our earth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jody. Thanks for everything you do.